Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. So, um, welcome everyone to the uh, Griffith Asia Institute seminar series. Today we've got Associate Professor Shahar Hamiri from uh, of Murdoch, but uh, about to join Queensland. So, when do you when do you come to Brisbane? Uh, January next year. Ah, very good. Yeah. For the weather. Turned it off, as we see. Um, so his research interests, political economy, security studies. Um, his latest book is co-authored with Lee Jones, Governing Borderless Threats, Non-Traditional Security, and the Politics of State Transformation with Cambridge. Is that uh, out already? Yes, it is. Yeah. I was actually uh, intending to bring uh, flyers and, and just put them out there, but I completely forgot. So, yeah, you always yeah. shoot with a 20% discount. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> Uh, his research has also appeared in leading journals, International Studies Quarterly, European Journal of International Relations, Political Studies, and the Pacific Review. Today he's going to talk about China's rise and state transformation. Many thanks, and, and thanks for the invitation. Uh, always conscious of, of being value for money. Uh, this week I'm actually presenting twice at uh, Griffith, once at the Griffith Asia Institute, and um, another time uh, at um, uh, the Center for Governance and Public Policy. So uh, I think that you know, if, if, if the government ever is worried about academics providing value for money, you can always use that as a case study and show them that uh, you know, we are hardworking. So many thanks especially to uh, Lee for uh, inviting me, and um, uh, Natasha is not here at the moment for actually organizing the, the actual uh, logistics of it and preventing from getting lost on campus. So this paper, as you can see, is also co-authored with Lee Jones, um, my colleague from Queen Mary University of London. It's based on a paper that he's already published uh, in some kind of early view form in the European Journal of International Relations. Well, we are planning a larger project. Uh, we've applied for some funding uh, with the idea of actually turning this into more of a book project. Uh, what this paper is about, is, as you will see, it's not a definitive sort of uh, framework explaining exactly all that we intend to explain. What it does actually is provide a, a proof of concept that the ideas that we're putting out there are actually worth investigating further and that uh, other scholars of, I mean, <coughs> excuse me, of international relations that are interested in the question of uh, rising powers should also pay attention to these issues as well. Um, so there'll be quite a lot of uh, black holes in there and, and all sorts of uh, areas where we need to um, go a little bit further and I'm sure you pick up on some of those. So uh, just to begin the, uh, the presentation proper, um, I'm pretty sure that unless you've been hiding under a rock uh, for, for the last 20 or um, about 20 years, uh, the phenomenal rise of so-called new powers, rising powers, uh, sometimes captured by the term BRICS, sometimes other countries are involved as well, but predominantly countries like China, India, Russia, Brazil, sometimes Indonesia, uh, has spurred a massive literature in IR and, and inter international political economy as well, uh, sort of seeking to understand what the implications are of this uh, perceived change in international politics. The big question that this literature tends to ask is what does their rise, especially in international relations, what does their rise mean for the international order and especially for the US-dominated international order? Um, China has been the main focus of this literature, although there's quite a large literature looking at the other so-called rising powers. I think it's fair to say that China has been the main case study in that literature because it is seen conventionally as the, the, the main country that is actually capable of replacing at some point, perhaps in the future, the United States, at least in East Asia. Therefore, a focus on China as a way into the broader debate we feel is justified because the, the, the question of rising powers is really one that focuses on China. And this is why we decided to focus on China with the aim of maybe down the track, look further than that um, when we um, have capacity to do that as well. 
none of these treatments of international relation, in international relations of rising powers actually look at the so-called units of international relations, states. More specifically, uh, most of those treatments don't actually consider how states are changing in relation to processes that we could broadly describe as globalization and how these processes and the changing nature of states might affect how China rises and what the implications of this process are for regional and international politics. Conversely, and this is our attempt to um, uh, contribute to this debate, we think that processes of state fragmentation, decentralization, and partial or uneven internationalization, which we capture in the term state transformation, are actually very important for contemporary rising powers in at least two respects. The first of which, which is the one that I'm going to be focusing on today, is the fragmented and decentralized state apparatuses, parts of the state, and quasi-market actors, such as state-owned enterprises, are increasingly pursuing their own independent interests and agendas overseas, generating often conflict-ridden, incoherent policy outputs that are often mistakenly uh, interpreted as grand strategy. The second point is that as these institutions and agencies develop transnational interests beyond the borders of China, um, they're also trying to establish transboundary governance arrangement in those countries to manage those interests, especially in the region, especially in Southeast Asia and, and nearby areas. Therefore, uh, we also argue that state transformation within rising power leads to state transformation or attempts at state transformation in neighboring countries as well. Again, there is a very large literature that I will not attempt to cover here, talking about the rise uh, of new powers in international relations and IP. But within that literature, the idea that states are changing uh, is either almost is either ignored entirely or dismissed when it comes to rising powers like China. Instead, China in particular is often seen, and I'll give you some examples <coughs> soon, as a very quintessentially Westphalian, coherent authoritarian state. In fact, it's often seen as trying to drag the world back into kind of a more Westphalian era where sovereignty was sovereignty and, and, and you know, we didn't have those kinds of issues that, uh, that we have today because of the dominance of the West. So just to give you a couple of examples, uh, these are just uh, quotes that we picked up from a few papers recently. Um, some of them are not that recent either. <coughs> There's a lot of sort of back to the future kind of arguments being put out there by various people that, you know, maybe the world is not exactly what it used to be, maybe sovereignty is not exactly what it used to be, but, but China is trying to drag the world back into uh, a more kind of Westphalian period where intervention across borders is not really happening and, and so on and so forth. So even to the extent that uh, globalization is understood to have uh, shaped states, it's not seen to have affected China so much, and China is trying to, if, if you like, reverse that trend. Even in the international political economy, uh, where globalization um, and you know just economic transformations in general are a very important consideration, uh, China is seen uh, and, and other rising powers as well are typically seen to be um, sort of dragging dragging us all back into an earlier era. Whether that's seen as a good thing or a bad thing, that's um, that's a separate matter. Neo Gramscian approaches uh, in uh, IPE probably. Uh, you know, the kind that sort of began with Robert Cox, are probably the most sensitive to uh, state transformation and its effects on, on international politics. However, even then, when it comes to rising powers, uh, the assumption is that a historic block has emerged in China and, and is dominating a relatively coherent state acting in its interests. So again, this assumption uh, leads to some kind of, uh, uh, of an understanding of international politics that, is, um, that, that neglects the uh, effects of state transformation. 
This assumption, however, is not borne out by empirical examination. So, oh, sorry, I should, probably should have shown you uh, some of these titles that have uh, been published in recent years. There's a big emphasis on, on grand strategy in China, and, um, and again, a lot of that is underpinned by the idea of China as, as, uh, as a unified authoritarian state <coughs> where the leadership has a capacity to plan and implement uh, a range of foreign and security policies that have considerable effect around the world. I think probably uh, the most uh, uh, extreme example, but one that you know, is, is actually prevalent in other publications, is this uh, one on the left, the 100-year marathon. So there is someone out there that thinks that actually the Chinese leadership is planning something 100 years into the future. That, that's how strategic they are in, in the way that they conduct their business. So... I think it's, it's interesting that even though this is the dominant view, especially in IR and IPE, the specialist literature on China, on the Chinese state, on Chinese politics, the, the, the area studies literature that works on China, actually disagrees. And most of the work conducted by sinologists, if you want to call them that, uh, has long emphasized China's fragmented authoritarianism. So what we're trying to do in this paper is actually to bring this work to bear on the debate in IR and IPE, and actually to demonstrate, as I mentioned before, that considerable fragmentation, decentralization, and inter internationalization of the Chinese state have actually occurred and that this has considerable effects on, on China's security and foreign policies and that this needs to be examined further and that contemporary debates in IR about the nature of rising powers need to be reworked accordingly. So before I uh, get into China specifically, just to give you some kind of definition about what we mean by state transformation, so our work is uh, broadly premised within uh, a particular branch of state theory, originally associated with the work of Gramsci, but later on developed by scholars like uh, um, Palancis and especially more, more recently Bob Jessup. And what that literature tells us about the state is the state is not a thing, it's not just a set of institutions and agencies, it is actually an expression of social power. Uh, it's a social relation. And contested social and political relations within the state will find their expression in the state's institution, and as these relations change, so will state institutions uh, and, and how they function change, uh, and, and that will obviously have some reflection on, on the state security and foreign policy. So in this way, if we define state transformation based on this definition of the state, its, trans its, its transformation is in part referring to a transformation in those relationships that underpin how state power is actually exercised. And specifically, it means shifts in the rationale for how state power is being used. There can be ideological shifts. Also, where state power is located, what parts of the state it's located. For example, in the West, we've seen that increasingly state power is located outside of the reach of representative institutions. In China, obviously, this process has different manifestations, but this is what we're referring to. And what kind of actors are exercising state power? Specifically, um, in the context of this particular era that we're looking at, this is a broad definition for state transformation that could be applicable in, in different historical periods. What we've seen especially that it takes the form of increasing fragmentation, decentralization, and some internationalization of the state. And, and that is in part because of the effects that uh, processes of economic uh, globalization have had on states. But not just because of that, because increasingly attention to transnational security issues is driving processes of tran uh, state transformation as well. If, if you like, uh, we see this process of transformation. Um, we see a transformation fundamentally in how state power is expressed, in whose interests and against whom, and um, 
this also comes from an, uh, uh, an assumption that state power is not going to be entirely coherent across all of the state apparatus and it could be exercised differently depending on who's mobilizing in different contexts and in different parts of the state. So this is not an original idea. This, this whole work on state transformation is actually well covered in political science, in state theory, in political economy, but as I mentioned before, it is very rarely applied in the context of, uh, of rising powers. It's very rarely applied in general in non-Western context. Um, uh, I think that uh, I'm one of a handful of people that have actually done that because of these assumptions that even though it might have happened in the West, it's not actually happening in these other parts of the world where states are seen to be more traditional, more Westphalian, if you like. But this is not the case in China. So state transformation in China um, is driven largely by a contested and uneven shift from state socialism to state-led capitalism since the 1970s. This process of liberalization, which I think many of you are aware of, began in the late 1970s, has, has led to the rise of many new sources and loci of power within the Chinese state and in society, and also to the emergence of new and often competing interests at various levels within the state, provincially, locally, nationally. Uh, that, that has also accelerated uh, trends of internationalization of parts of the state. So I'm just going to go through some of these processes here fairly briefly. So I've identified privatization. Actually, privatization in China is not uh, a particularly important process, although it's, uh, there's been considerable privatization of, uh, of many, many state-owned enterprises, which at one point were numbering in the uh, hundreds of thousands. There's still many of them around. Uh, but nowadays, probably the most important aspect of privatization in China is not so much the creation of private enterprises, which in the Chinese context is actually something that is quite hard to define anyway. It's uh, more about the consolidation of very large state-owned enterprises um, uh, and, and their corporatization, which in some cases at least led to the creation of uh, corporations that are operating quite autonomously from various ministries. So if, for example, in the 1980s, state-owned enterprises used to be directly governed by ministries within the Chinese state, uh, by 2003, for example, a, a regulatory agency was created that was overseeing their operation at the national level. And of course, there's a lot of different manifestations of it at the provincial and local levels where there's a lot of state-owned enterprises as well. I think it's uh, fair to say that uh, state-owned enterprises have played a very big part in, in, um, in China's sort of uh, arrival on the world stage as uh, a major investor. In fact, something like 90% of Chinese uh, outbound direct investment is done by state-owned enterprises, and many of them are those very large ones at the national level. There's also been considerable fragmentation in the Chinese state. From the 1990s, again, uh, piecemeal reforms have tried to turn central ministries more into coordinating ministries, uh, sort of approximating what people uh, in political science call regulatory state systems. So rather than having direct line control, coordinating a whole range of different agencies. The result has been considerable fragmentation and overlapping jurisdiction in many areas. <clears throat> so if we take China's oceans and energy policy, each of those are overseen by something like 11 different ministerial level agencies. Okay, so there's considerable fragmentation in these very dis discrete areas. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which is often the focus of IR, you know, talking about the di diplomatic arm of the state, if you like, um, often does not have monopoly control over foreign affairs. Uh, and, and because these are all ministerial level agencies, everyone is basically on the same level, and they don't have the ability in most cases to actually uh, compel these different agencies to do what they want them to do. If you want to take one example, um, China used to have five Coast Guard agencies. Uh, now it has two. Uh, four of them were amalgamated into one agency. And one agency, the Maritime Safety Administration, 
just refused to be amalgamated and could not be compelled to, to amalgamate. So it still sits outside of, of the Coast Guard. And even within the Coast Guard, as I understand, there's still considerable turf wars relating to uh, you know, sort of relationships that these agencies had with ministries before that. Decentralization has also been a very important part of uh, this process of transformation in China. Provincial administration from uh, the 1980s were given considerable latitude to develop their own economic uh, policies and have also been given authority to actually uh, interact or have uh, an economic foreign policy, if you like. Very quickly from, uh, from that moment on, local governments and provincial governments have uh, rapidly developed local businesses, privatized local SOEs, uh, provincial SOEs, into the hands of local cadres. Um, establish internal protectionist measures to protect these uh, these uh, these companies, uh, and um, and the result has been the shattering of the national economy into what someone has described as economic dukedoms. Granted, there's been many attempts since then by the central government to claw back power, especially claw back ta taxation, but these have not been entirely successful, uh, leading to uh, what has also been described uh, as de facto federalism from about the mid-1990s. Again, provincial gov governors rank alongside um, uh, national ministries, and therefore uh, they, they don't have, the national ministers do not have the capacity to compel them to do anything that they don't want to do. And we, we definitely see that the interests of local or provincial and national leaders um, and, and, um, and, and party um, uh, cadres are often at odds. Uh, and even when commands are, are given directly, sometimes because the implementation is done at that level, the implementation actually differs quite dramatically from what the intended outcome was to be. Uh, in some of the case studies that I'll discuss later, you'll see that I think reflected quite clearly. Finally, um, the process of internationalization of parts of the Chinese state, or at least uneven internationalization, it's been highly uneven, has also been quite important. And, and uh, it's, it's especially seen in the work of some regulatory agencies at the national and sub-national levels, but also in, in how uh, state-owned enterprises uh, work as well. What we see is that some of these actors promote considerable uh, compliance with international govern governance systems, while some formerly domestic entities have actually acquired domestic governance functions beyond China's borders. I think that it's really important to bear in mind that a lot of the time internationalization is used as a mechanism actually within the state for driving certain agendas and marginalizing others. So one good example for this <clears throat> is the process of China's accession to the WTO, which was heavily driven from the Ministry of Finance, heavily resisted by other parts of, uh, of the Chinese state uh, because of the way that the liberalization would have affected their own interests, leading to uh, highly uh, uneven uh, uh, compliance with the w, uh, WTO rules uh, as a result. And there's some other examples that could be given here as well. Uh, the process of the uh, renminbi internationalization is another example for this, uh, where there's been considerable struggles within the state where internationalization was used as a mechanism for trying to apply pressure on other interests within the state. None of this, and this is where I think uh, our project needs to uh, go further, none of this is to say that this, these processes have happened uniformly or coherently across the state. This is a highly contested and uneven process, and there's certainly been a lot of attempts to try and claw back authority from the centre to re-centralise issues. <clears throat> Especially in recent years, under the leadership of uh, Xi, we've seen... Um, quite significant attempts to try and, and re-centralise power, uh, including through the establishment of uh, 
of Politburo uh, Working Group on Foreign Affairs uh, through uh, um, uh, purges, of course, you know, quite, quite, um, you know, quite famously um, in, in recent years, you know, there's been an attempt to uh, try and, um, and deal with people through the disciplinary processes of the party, um, and, and indeed the party is one of the ways in which, because the all, all of those elites are members of the Communist Party of China. The, the party itself serves as a, as a mechanism for try to produce some kind of coherence within the state. But I think we shouldn't go, we shouldn't go as far as, as uh, coming to the conclusion as some people have that, okay, well, maybe things used to be messy, but she has come in and sorted everything out because my understanding uh, is that the evidence does not bear that out uh, and that even the purges had considerable political logic to them in terms of who was in and who was out. Uh, and also, uh, some observers with a lot of experience, like uh, Linda Jacobson, are actually asking themselves whether she's overplaying his hand a little bit, and, and maybe um, he'll find himself in a bit, of a, a bit of a spot of bother in the coming years if he continues to push uh, as hard as he has. And having said that again, you know, there's a lot of areas where the, the way that uh, uh, policy goes from the top to the bottom is through very, including especially under Xi, is, is through the use of very vague and, and kind of grand uh, policy statements which leave a lot of room for interpretation, which then become an arena for contestation within a whole range of interest, and that's even without actually dis discussing the issue of implementation, where again, because everything is implemented at a much lower level, implementation can take very different form. So finally, so to kind of summarize that, uh, that part of the, uh, of the seminar, China's rise does not reflect a monolithic state that is pursuing a coherent grand strategy, at least in most cases. At least, what, uh, instead, what we see is uh, quite a lot of state and quasi-state uh, agencies that are pursuing uncoordinated, often chaotic, often contradictory agendas beyond China's borders, notwithstanding efforts to coordinate them. This often uh, produces uh, anti-Chinese backlash in, in various countries, I think, um, uh, and considerable fears about, uh, about China's in intentions abroad. I think a good example for that would be the riots in Vietnam quite recently, which were related to uh, the rig that was put in the South China Sea. Uh, but I think that, uh, nonetheless, um, you know, we need to understand these processes very well, uh, and we need to understand the kind of, uh, uh, if you like, the envelope within which uh, a transformation occurs and, and uh, in what circumstances in, it, in order to make sense of how Chinese security and foreign policy really is, you know, as opposed to what the leadership says it is. So just to give you a couple of uh, case studies in the time that I've got uh, about how this plays out in reality. One is the, the case of the South China Sea, the other one is Chinese aid in the Pacific. I hope to get to the second one, we'll see. So this is the map of the South China Sea. Um, Again, the issue of the South China Sea has been in the headlines quite a bit in recent times, and it's often used as an example for how uh, a rising China is becoming more assertive and more aggressive in its immediate region. And therefore, as a case study, it speaks quite directly to the key question of uh, debates in uh, IR about rising powers, about uh, whether China's rise in Asia will lead to war, essentially, you know, initially between China and its neighbours, and later on with other countries. Again, so the South China Sea has been uh, um, uh, regarded, I think, as one of East Asia's most serious flashpoints. China has repeatedly issued uh, quite vague but uh, quite insistent claims uh, to a vast oceanic area, the so-called Nine-Dash Line. So you can see that there. The Nine-Dash Line is the red line. Okay, The uh, UN Convention on Laws of the Sea, UNCLOS, 
is the blue line. So the blue line only talks about exclusive economic zones, 200 nautical miles around islands. That, that's what the UN Convention actually says, and, and the Chinese, uh, well, parts of the Chinese state claim the entire area. Clearly that has led to a lot of conflicts with its neighbours, both diplomatic and, and less diplomatic over recent years. And, and again, this, this move, is the, uh, the claiming of, of the Nine Dash Line is often interpreted, especially by realists, as part of some kind of strategic phase expansion of China in, this, in the South China Sea, pushing its neighbours further and further. I think reality is far less coherent. I think if we dig under that, we, we find that um, um, it's not really borne out. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs, first of all, let's start with them. Poor, hapless Ministry of Foreign Affairs don't actually control China's policy in the, church, in, in the South China Sea. They are theoretically responsible to what happens in the, in, in, in the SCS, uh, but they're largely bypassed by other more powerful actors within the Chinese state, pretty much in, in, every, in every corner. There's a further dozen or so national and subnational agencies that have some jurisdiction in this area, and those include the Ministry of Agriculture's Bureau of Fisheries Administration, China Marine Surveillance, provincial governments, especially the government of the Hainan province, China's Coast Guard, the national oil companies, the uh, uh, People's National, uh, the People's uh, uh, Liberation Army. Navy and, of course, the uh, Maritime Safety Authority which, uh, administration, which, as I mentioned, is the, uh, the one that did not merge with the Coast Guard. And all of these different groups are actually vying for some kind of authority and some kind of effect in the South China Sea. On the ground, decisions are made by these various and multiple actors, and as we'll see, this incoherence actually produces fairly risky outcomes. So the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has actually officially ratified the UNCLOS Convention, the, the blue lines, um, and in 2002 has also agreed on a declaration on the conduct of parties with ASEAN, again ratifying the same boundaries. But because it is persistently admit, uh, undermined by these other interests within the state, it, it finds itself uh, often having to make post hoc explanations for what actually happened. Um, sometimes they're not even aware of what's happened until much later on uh, when um, they, they need to kind of scramble and figure out you know, what happened and how they should respond. The, uh, the PLA Navy um, has been, uh, uh, for, for a very long time, uh, using the, uh, the disputes in the South China Sea to strengthen its position within the Chinese state. There's a lot of examples for this, but even as going back to 1995, the Navy sees mischief reef that Philippines uh, claims, and uh, apparently this was the price that they extracted for their support for the incoming Premier Zhang Zemin. And unlike the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which only lays claim to the UNCLOS lines, the Navy officially on many occasions said that uh, it claimed the, the whole nine dash lines. Another important interest uh, that uh, uh, has uh, had considerable influence in the SCS uh, are China's largely autonomous national oil companies. So the national oil companies, um, not, not just in the SCS, but uh, in other parts of the world, uh, because they were fairly uh, late to come into the, 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 the global game of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, capturing and, and exploiting energy resources, they've had to uh, uh, often go and find resources uh, both in rogue states or, and, and also in parts of the world where uh, extraction is a little bit more difficult. Again, like the PLA Navy and unlike the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, national oil companies have <clears throat> also laid claim to the entire Nandash Line area, quite simply because it gives them more area that they can provide as concession to other companies to go into drilling and so on.
Again, a lot of the, uh, um, the, the important incidents that happened in the South China Sea, uh, including the one last year with the, the rig that was put in and then taken out <coughs> uh, in uh, 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 waters claimed by Vietnam, uh, had considerable influence on, uh, on the China's image in the region. Uh, I mentioned before the riots in Vietnam. These actions were largely, appeared to be at least, largely autonomously coordinated by the NOx. Probably the, the, the most significant irritant in the South China Sea from the Chinese uh, side is actually the provincial government of Hainan province. So Hainan is that island there, you can see it there on the map, um, just south of the mainland. The provincial administration of Hainan is the one in charge of managing China's waters in, in that area. And unsurprisingly, it also claims the entire Nandash line. And the reason for that is, is not to do with hydrocarbons, which is more the area that the national oil companies are interested in. This is more to do with uh, Hainan's fisheries. Um, they're, they're not allowed, actually, to, uh, to be pursuing hydrocarbon exploration, uh, but the, uh, the fishery industries in Hainan are actually quite important. Uh, deregulation in the 1990s saw the, China, the Hainan's uh, fishing fleet rise, if I'm not mistaken, fourfold in 10 years, uh, and yields... Uh, went through the roof, but of course what happened is that uh, fishing uh, resources close to home were um, uh, exhausted fairly quickly. And, and that, if you like, encouraged the Hainan government to push the fishing fleet further out into the SES. And I think it's important to understand that of many incidents that have happened in the SES between Chinese uh, um, uh, agencies or companies and, and those of other countries, more than half between 1989 and 2010 were actually Hainanese fishing vessels fishing in the South China Sea. So we're not talking about necessarily um, uh, the agencies of, uh, of uh, national uh, administration or anything like that. It is the Hanan, uh, Hainanese government that has been conducting these, ex uh, these fishing expeditions further into the sea and encouraging also private fleets to get out there as well. And also reinforcing its capacity to protect these, uh, these uh, fishing trawlers as they head out to sea. Um, again, unlike the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which uh, may try to balance economic interests in that part of the world against other diplomatic uh, objectives that it may or may not have, the Hananese government is only interested in uh, deriving economic growth from that region through its fishing expeditions. And, um, and because the Hananese government um, cannot be controlled by the, um, by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, what we have, again, is considerable incoherence. Uh, in fact, um, China, again, has uh, been signatory to the uh, Food and Agriculture Organization Convention that was meant to limit fishing in that part of the world, but the Hainan government could not be compelled to actually comply with it in practice, so hence uh, the, uh, these fishing um, expeditions continue. So I think that we can see that at least in part, uh, these recurrent crises in the South China Sea uh, reflect uh, fragmentation, decentralization, and partial internationalization of the Chinese state. We see a lot of agencies that are originally emerging in a very domestic context suddenly playing a role, foreign policy or security uh, policy that they're not aimed at, that they're never meant to have, and they're not particularly well equipped to have either. <clears throat> and because a lot of those agencies have significant autonomy and because they uh, operate, uh, they often have conflicting ag uh, agendas and interests, what we have is a policy in the South China Sea that has been described by quite a number of, uh, of um, uh, observers as um, a, quote, consistently inconsistent, uh, displaying an almost incomprehensible level of unpredictability, 
and lack of any discernible strategy. So what we have in the South China Sea is that it's not a grand strategy, as, as realists would have it. Having said that, what we also can learn from the SES case is that actually this situation can be very dangerous because uh, we have had a lot of uh, 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 crises, uh, a lot of uh, incidents in the South China Sea that could lead to uh, military confrontation. It could lead to some kind of uh, 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 you know, a, a difficult outcome in the region. So you know, there is no grand strategy as the realists would have it. This is not necessarily good news as perhaps some of the more liberal uh, commentators would have it as well. Okay, so the next case study, very quickly, is the one of Chinese aid in the Pacific Islands region. Uh, this is the region there, and the countries that I've uh, put uh, um, you know, in red there are the ones that actually officially recognize China, because many countries in the Pacific Islands region actually officially recognize Taiwan, and that's been a source of uh, some checkbook diplomacy in the region for a long time, although that seems to have uh, quietened down in recent years. So Chinese aid has, uh, be, again, been subject to considerable debate in the literature, because of the view, at least in some parts, that China um, is uh, practicing what has been described as rogue aid. So it's using its aid to prop up military regimes, it's using its aid to prop up all sorts of unsavory people uh, and, uh, and buy friendships um, in different parts of the world. And, and similar arguments have also been made in the Pacific. In fact, some people have questioned whether uh, China's rising aid um, packages to the Pacific. Most recently, there was an announcement in 2013 of $2 billion combined uh, aid and concessional loans, which is not exactly aid, but um, that's been there as well. Whether it's in a, whether some kind of, again, a hegemonic strategy to replace the U.S. and Australia in, in the Pacific Islands region as the, as, the, as the dominant power. However, again, uh, once you peel underneath the uh, pebbly. Uh, if you look at the actual facts of what is actually going on, I think that there's very little evidence to, uh, to support that view. In the Pacific, as in other parts of the world, and that is with the exception of a design to buy diplomatic um, relations away from Taiwan, which has not really been a big issue in, the, in, the, in, in that region, generally speaking, Chinese aid is driven from below by commercial considerations especially of provincial level companies, especially in construction and infrastructure, that are seeking to go out. The way that it works in practice is they head out to the region or to a particular country, talk to a government, would you like us to build a bridge for you or something like that? And, and the government would say, yeah, why not? We like that idea. Um, and, and they would go back. This is a very obviously simplified version. Uh, then they would go back and, and try to use the Chinese uh, aid system to get funding to do that project, which would be delivered by that company with Chinese workers, etc. And the idea is that you, you do those um, uh, projects for very low levels of profitability, usually about 1% to 2%. Then you get the relationship, you got your foot in the door, and then you can go for more lucrative projects as time goes on. So this is what drives most Chinese aid around the world. And the Pacific is no different. So I've got the example of PNG here to illustrate uh, that particular point. So PNG uh, is uh, the uh, largest recipient of Chinese aid in the Pacific. It's almost 60%, but it's actually uh, less than its population share of that, of that region because PNG's population is something like 70% of the total population of that part of the world where populations are very small in general. <clears throat> so some of the arguments made in relation to Chinese aid to the Pacific is that it's related to an attempted resource grab because PNG has more natural resources uh, uh, than many other Pacific countries simply because it's a lot bigger. Um, but the only uh, 
resource investment that a Chinese company is involved in is uh, one nickel mine, which is a reasonably large investment, but most resource investment in PNG uh, is actually carried out by uh, Australian or other uh, American, other Western uh, companies, and th there's very little discernible relationship between you know, the, the, uh, the disbursement of aid and resource investment. So in PNG, 13 of 20, uh, the, 13 of the, the, the largest 20 um, uh, biggest uh, Chinese enterprises are actually construction firms, and that is in line with experience in other parts of the world. And most of the investment coming in is coming in uh, in, uh, as I said, over 50% is actually in retail. Um, so it's a very small enterprises setting up shops and things like that, you know, um, and that's where a lot of the investment goes in. Chinese aid funds mainly infrastructure projects. Things like university dorms, roads. I mean, that's pretty much where all the money is gone. So it's very hard to look at this statistic and, and actually see some kind of a relationship between this aid and, and any discernible strategy as such beyond just drumming up business for Chinese companies abroad using the aid system. And as for the argument that Chinese aid is politically driven, I think the best example for that is the case of uh, Fiji. And there was quite a lot of, again, hyperbole in the media in 2007 because in that year, Chinese aid to Fiji increased sevenfold. And that was, as it were, the year after the coup in Fiji where uh, um, uh, the military seized power of the state. The Australian media in particular was full of stories at the time about how China is propping up a military regime in the Pacific. Again, you know, once you look beyond the hyperbole, the facts don't actually back it up. So all of the uh, projects that, uh, that were to be delivered by Chinese aid were all agreed before the coup, first of all. Second, the reason why there was a sevenfold increase in that year was simply because the year before was a year where um, the Chinese Premier actually made an announcement that China will be given a certain amount of aid to the Pacific. Um, so it just happened that it released funds and they're available. Pretty much all the projects that were delivered by a Chinese aid, uh, but one, uh, which was an e-government project, so helping the Fijian government, uh, you know, computerize its system. We're in construction infrastructure, which is a recurring theme. You know, pretty much all the projects are in that area. What is important, though, is that this aid did have a political effect, and it had political effect not because of what Chinese aid did, it was because the Fijian government was able to quite to play it up quite well and, and tell the Australian government that actually, look, you know, we have new friends now, they're giving us money, there's all this stuff going on, whereas in reality it wasn't really going on. Uh, but it, it, it kind of fed into a mentality in Australia that um, uh, seems very dominant uh, in, in, in you know, high levels of government that the rise of China heralds some kind of uh, new Cold War, if you like, in that part of the world. Um, so this is so, so the political effect of Chinese aid to Fiji did not come out of the nature of the aid itself, which is all in construction and projects that were fairly insignificant, just extending roads and things like that. But it was the fact that the Fijian government was able to actually use that to push back a little bit on uh, the Australian government, which was trying to isolate it in the region at the time. And I think more generally, the increases in foreign aid in China have to be seen, in my, in my view, uh, as part of uh, a broader context of basically a crisis of, if you like, overcapacity in the Chinese economy. So the Chinese economy suffers from incredibly low levels of profitability. Pretty much all investment in recent years has been in fixed infrastructure. This has been the, the main source of growth in GDP for over a decade. And, and companies just 
have very little option you know, domestically build or to uh, especially build profitably. Um, and therefore, uh, the Chinese government uh, at various levels, but certainly the national government, has been keen to promote Chinese investment abroad and get Chinese companies to actually work abroad where they could potentially find more uh, lucrative sources of, um, of uh, uh, more lucrative projects. And I think that it needs to be placed in a broader context of initiatives like the uh, Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, One Belt, One Road, and a lot of other similar initiatives that are all infrastructure initiatives, all of them. And all of them have at least in part the agenda of actually allowing companies to uh, escape an incredibly saturated and, and low profitability market within China. So I think uh, none of this looks exactly uh, like those Sorry, going back to this. Those kinds of ideas about what is going on. So just to conclude very briefly, I think that today's rising powers, um, China specifically for us, they don't really look like those rising powers of the 19th century, like Germany, or, you know, Prussia, Germany. Um, uh, and, and unfortunately, that's the context in which IR theory has emerged. So I think that what we need to do is to develop new frameworks of analysis for understanding how these processes of internal transformation are affecting Chinese foreign and security policy or the foreign and security policies of other rising powers. And I think that from a policy point of view, and I think it's clear that a lot of this has considerable policy implications, uh, as I said before, if there is an assumption that what we have is some kind of grand strategies, then governments react to it in this way, which is not necessarily the best way to react to it. I think the governments, are, uh, you know, anyone who's interested really, have to understand that there's considerable fragmentation uh, and, and inconsistency within the state and need to learn to work in that environment, sort of understand in, in relation to particular issues who's there, who's against who, what their interests are and, and, and what kind of more uh, sophisticated uh, forms of intervention or engagement are possible in order to get the outcomes that uh, you know, this actor is after. Um, I think that unless we do that, uh, uh, our engagement with countries like China is going to be far uh, less than optimal and could actually lead to uh, serious confrontation. I'm just going to leave it there. Thanks. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.